Welcome to NGFE Radio, where the rubber leaves the dirt and hits the studio. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of NGFE Radio. What's up? The uh, usual suspects, uh, myself, Danny, and Lou. And we got a pretty special guest today, I think. Mike Franzi. Yo, what's, what's up, up, Mike? I'm pretty stoked, man. Just chilling down here and uh, testing with some cool dudes. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Man. So this, this episode's going to basically just be a... I, me personally, I, I want to ask you like how you started riding bikes, what started your passion, how it came to now owning for, like Fullerton bikes, obviously, and just kind of, you know, just the whole lowdown, man. So you want to hear my life story, huh? Let's get to the nitty-gritty. <laughs> so I guess uh, I'll start off. Uh, where did you grow up, and how did you get into biking? Was it, was it a childhood thing? So, you know, I get asked that question often. Um, I grew up in, in Orange County. And I grew up in Fullerton, where I have my shop now, which is cool. And I'm, it's one of my videos on our website, but that take back from On Any Sunday is kind of like that dude riding a wheelie. Mm-hmm. And I had a Swin Stingray, and my dad took me to see that movie. And I was like, this is rad. I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy. I was like, <laughs> yes, you know? And I'll never forget it. The next, so like we went and saw On Any Sunday, whatever year that was, like 74, I think it was like 76 maybe. We went and saw it on any Sunday. It was chill. So the next day, I had a Schwinn Stingray, and we lived, like, we just moved in this new house, and there was, like, all these dirt fields. So I was, like, converting my Schwinn Stingray to be, like, <laughs> like, like a motorcycle, man. <laughs> I went to Buena Park Bikes, which I own now, and I bought, my dad bought me fenders, like these, fact, I think they were called Factory MX, and they were, like, metal fenders for a dollar. Bought a mud flap, and put on, like, these hokey bars. I think we spent, like, all of $6.00. I bought them to Cindy, who still works for me today. Wow. I mean, it's awesome. rad. And I, my dad loved Cindy because her hair was down to the ground back then in the 70s. I guess that was cool. Was she a hippie? She was, she, no, she wasn't hippie. She's a devout Christian. She's never changed. But, like, her, she looked like a hippie. But she was rad. You know? Just, like, that was the way you did it. So I remember coming home. The guy next to me used to work for Hughes Aircraft McDonnell Douglas. And he made me these, like, plexiglass number plates. And we put them on with, like, hose clamps. I have a picture somewhere. And that was, like, rad. And I just started riding my bike, making wood jumps, and, like, the rest is history. I mean, that's straight up, my whole life was just, from that day forward, was all about the bike. That's pretty early on, too, going on the dirt. I mean, yeah. I'm looking, on any Sunday was out, uh, 1971. That's a great movie. Yeah, yeah so is. I think, yeah, I mean, it was probably 72 then when I saw it. 73 then, yeah. Or, like, no, I mean, it was, yeah, 71 then. There you go. So I was six, yeah, six years old, because I was born in 65. Do the math. <laughs> so That's pretty awesome. BMX first? You got into racing BMX? Yeah, so that's kind of started it, you know, and, like, I didn't really, like, that was early BMX, so I was always, like, you're, like, we were kids, and, like, I used to hold in front of my house, like, these neighborhood contests, and we'd build wooden jumps, and Sue jumped the farthest, and I made, like, (laughs) trophies with pennies, and then we'd do, like, little, like, races, and just, like, it was so rad being a kid back then, and it was just, it was unbelievable, but that's what it started, and then it was cool because, like, you know, I, we were all like made shift BMX bikes, you know, they're like Schwinn Stingrays and mm-hmm. we were cutting the forks off and making custom seats and I had this little shop in my garage and I made flyers and went around the neighborhood passing out flyers like, I'll fix your bike. I don't know what I was doing, but I was like, yeah, I'll fix your bike. <laughs> but it was cool because what happened was, you know, I had a couple other buddies and then we'd go to the park and it was, what kind of transpired me was like one day I was at the library, I was going to St. Mary's school and went over to the Fullerton Library, like a field trip and we could like walk across the street with the teachers and I'm in there, and there was a Sports Illustrated, and I don't know if it was Sports Illustrated Kids 
or Sports Illustrated, period. And they had a whole section on BMX. They had a picture of Stu Thompson. I remember that. I mean, I know what today it was. And then they did this little article like on BMX, and it showed La Mata Regional Park. So I was like just mesmerized. Like I had to take this magazine home. So I get home, and I'm the only child, and I'm like, Dad, I want to go here. Let's check out BMX, <laughs> you know, and this is what I want to do and go. And I think they got races. And my dad could have given two craps about bikes. You know what I mean? He was all about <laughs> golf and just, you know, baseball. And I played Little League, which I was watching the guys in the background riding their bikes more than I was, like, interested in the pitch, you know? <laughs> so my dad takes me there. And this is a true story today. And you guys don't even know this dude. So I get there, and they just finished racing along my regional park. And I'm like, this is rad, you know? So, like, I see some guys hanging out. And I didn't bring my bike. We just walked. My dad drove us there, and we walked up. I was with my dad and my friend Jeff. And I'm watching, like, these guys, and I'm, like, mesmerized. Like, this guy had a Schwinn Sting, and they were, like, a Webco, and, like, oh, my God, oh, nice. these bikes. Yeah. So I'm just drooling, you know. So there's this dude there, and he's got, a like, the dream bike that I wanted. It was a Schwinn Sting. It was chrome-plated, had Schwinn V-tread, Bob Reddy pedals, like, I don't remember, the crash Bula cranks, and, like, V-bars. And I just went up to the guy, and I'm like, oh, dude, your bike's sick. So I'm, like, this, like, 12, 10-year-old kid, and I'm like, can I try your bike? And he's like, yeah, dude, it's cool. So I tried his bike. And that guy's name is Steve Bemke. Some of you guys, I mean, Steve Bemke today is still involved in the cycling community. Yeah. He was a pioneer in XTR and RockShock. Yeah, I mean, wow. he's, yeah. he's you know, cool. yeah, he knows, he knows Tom. I mean, he's, that guy's been around. But he's like, we're really good friends today. So I told him this story, like, you know, 10 years ago when I met him again. I'm like, I remember you. Because he raced with Keith Lawson and all the guys back in the day. But anyway, so when I went home, like, I was in school, and I would, like, draw on my notepad. Like, I had, like, a little piece of paper. And I'm drawing this guy's handlebars. Like, this is my dream bike. No, I would, like, Bob Reddy pedals. And I remember attic sprockets. It was, like, that was just... So then, like, they raced once a month, and it was a dollar to race. And I remember, like, I had a rally rampart, and my dad took me there, and I raced my first race. I was, like, 10 beginner. Dead last. Not even close. <laughs> Didn't matter, though. I was stoked. Oh, so yeah. I kind of kept coming back racing, like, once a month, you know? And then... It was, like, one day we, like, I, get, I made the main. Like, I transferred, you know, and there was, like, 13, whatever, 13 kids. I don't remember. And, like, we're all kind of, like, joking in the starting line. And, like, the guy holds the gate. Riders ready. Pedals ready. Go. And, like, I grab the whole shot. And I'm pedaling. And, like, there's, like, nobody, like, next to me. And I can just remember that feeling today, like, I could win a race, man. And, like, I just pedaled real hard. And I freaking won. Like, it was, like, the coolest experience ever. <laughs> That's awesome. Is that a real feeling or what? Hell yeah. <laughs> Sorry. But yeah, it was like, this is legit, man. I'm going to be a pro, you know. But wow. it was, it was. I mean, it was a great take back to go back there and just relive that just now. So, so you were right in when BMX was booming. It was, yeah, this is real BMX. Yeah, when you know? there's tracks everywhere, not it like is, where it is today. Yeah, it's, a, it's really sad today. Well, even just joke. that, having that, you know, a local spot, you know, like that often too. You're yeah. saying you're going once a month. I'm sure they had races in between. It was cheap. People yeah. were stoked. Yeah. And then it, it, I, I was, I mean, I grew through the sport as it progressed. And what was really cool was a couple weeks ago, we did a huge road ride up to Crystal Lake. And there was a track that I used to race at called Azusa, which we rode by. And I told Brent, I'm like, dude, there used to be a BMX track there. I used to race my bike. That was Harry Larry's local track. I mean, like full history. And it's like, like a field, you know, it's like, it's crazy. Yeah. But yeah, BMX was really good back then. And that's kind of what led into it. I ride to uh, Crystal Lake's pretty, pretty ride. I like it up there. Yeah, it's a, that's a, that's a no big traffic. One. No traffic. I love it up there. It's beautiful. Um, yeah, so you're, we're talking mid seventies here. What was like the heyday of BMX? It was like mid eighties, I think, is when it kind of yeah. BMX, out. I think when I so then you know I kind of was like a part time racer. Just you know we had a life. My dad played golf and my mom whatever. You know they were cool, but yeah, I just rode my bike and then I got a little bit more into it. 
once I became like 14 years old, I kind of like was able to blossom and my parents took me racing more often. I had a couple friends that were racing and then we would like go to races like, you know, you go like Saturday, you go to Lancaster and then maybe the following week we went to San Diego and Irvine and Orange and all these tracks. Wow. And then, um, you know, I started to get a little bit better. And then, like, the track I'd never been to was the Orange Y, which is kind of ironic because that's gone now. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that's I can same. remember my dad took me there, and it was on a Wednesday night. This is in, like, probably 80 now. Now we're into the 80s. I think I was about 15 years old, so probably, like, 81-ish. I was one year old. Fucking <laughs> so rubbing his face. <laughs> so, so, so we get there, and it's freaking packed, like, over-the-hump packed. And oh, I've never been, like, this was, the, this was the place to go. I made my main. I didn't leave... It was like June. I don't. We didn't get out of there like eleven thirty at night. Like wow. eighty motos. Like today, you go to BMX track and you tell that story. People are like, yeah, you're smoking. You're, yeah. No, there's no way, dude. <laughs> yeah. So it was really amazing, like to see that. And my dad's like, I'm never coming back here again. I can't. I gotta go to work the next day. You know, blah blah blah. But anyway, <laughs> soon as I got my license, man, I had my truck, and then I built parks that local track. We started working on parks. Like my freshman year, I ran into my guy that was one of my best friends, and we built the whole parks BMX thing. We started holding our own races. And that became like a local hot spot, like Sheep Hills today, or mm. just the local trails. Everybody rode there. I groomed it. I built it. I had hoses and shovels, and we held our own races. We created our own bicycle league called PBL, nice. which was pretty chill. So we had PBL, and then I would recycle all my old trophies and buy my friends' old trophies, and we'd give trophies to the kids. I got videos on my website and stuff. So that really transpired a lot for me for like what BMX became, and that was the heyday of BMX. No two ways about it. Nice. Pros back then were making, you know, sixty, eighty thousand driving Porsche cars. Oh, and you had corporate sponsors. Yeah, really yeah. Like I mean, there was thirty bike companies that had factory teams that had budgets, not like today. You know, big companies. Yeah. You know, Redline, GT, Schwinn, Hutch, CW. They were big teams. JMC. These guys had big teams and paid pros good money to raise BMX bikes. Yeah, I think we covered that in one of our episodes, or if, if not one of our conversations, but mountain biking in the 90s, same kind of thing. You had Jeep, you had... Oh, yeah, when it blew up, like, uh, yeah. Norba, right? Norba, yeah, Norba. that was, yeah. So that was kind of, you know, a really instrumental part of my life doing that, you know. And, and it was funny, so, like, I live in Fullerton, and there was the Fullerton Loop. So as I was getting older in my BMX days, mm -hmm. the mountain biking thing started to take off. And we'd see these guys, and we'd be like, what a bunch of clowns. Look at these bikes, you know, like these old yeah. road bikes. And it was like Richard Cunningham. And they'd do the Forge Loop on Thursday nights. And they'd like ride by... Richard, RB... Richard Cunningham was, yeah. was local? Yeah. Well, they would ride this Thursday night loop back in the... Him and uh, Bob Hadley. These guys oh, would ride man. the Fullerton loop. His wife was my cross-country coach. Yeah, it's sad really? to hear what happened to her yeah, about, yeah, she's a, she's a, Bob's a great guy. He comes to my shop all the time. Oh, that's awesome. But yeah, anyway, so like, you know, that's, we watched, I kind of watched mountain biking transform right in front of me. And like, I was good friends with like Dave Cullohan and Brian Lopes and Eric Carter yeah, and like uh, Toby Henderson and like all those guys, we all rode together and we had good times and I just watched them make this transformation into mountain biking and they all, you know, killed it. At that point... You know, I had the pressure of my dad. I was ready to turn A pro. Back then they had A, they still do. And I fell and I broke my hand super bad. So it was like three months, surgery, you know, not like Ken Roxon, but it was it was pretty gnarly. Yeah. So after that, I kind of came back and I was training real hard. I still wanted to turn pro. It was like towards the end of a 17X. And I was riding home from parks because we had a session. And I remember, like, my crank was loose or something, and I reached down, and I, I don't know what I did, and I fell, and I broke my thumb. Whoa. And I had to have surgery again. Like, literally, like, three months to the day that I broke, like, this was healed, three months to the day I broke my thumb. I'm like, 
So I get home, and my dad was home, I don't know where my mom was, and I'm like, Dad, I think I go to the hospital. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I think I broke my thumb, and he was just pissed, you know. Ah, you gotta get a life, you know. Dad. Yeah, I, 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 anyway, love my dad, he was the greatest man ever. But the point is, then I kind of like, you know, like, how much longer, you know, like, just injuries, you know, Trey Kennard syndrome, like, how many injuries can I go through, and what am I going to do, you know, and yeah. I look back, I mean, I kind of regret I still didn't pursue BMX or go more mountain biking back then, because, I mean, I rode and raced with the best back in the day, Yeah, I mean, you know? those names are big names just right there. Huge, and they're all, we're still, we're all good friends, it's all good, but, so I kind of got out of, you know, the bike scene, I started going to work, going to school again, getting a real job. My parents owned a grocery store, so that was kind of the plan was for me to transpire from, you know, college and then take over this grocery store, but I truly just loved riding my bike, but after those injuries, mountain biking wasn't developed, so that was kind of still like, we're like laughing at these clowns, like, mm-hmm. oh, that's gay, blah, 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 tight pants and <laughs> stupid handlebars and big old, yeah, but, hey, 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 <laughs> all these big grips, you know, I was like, ah, this is, this is hokey, I'm not going to do this crap, so uh, we just, you know, it just, I just, I ended up kind of getting involved with the jet ski. Like, out of the blue. Like, I'm going to buy a jet ski. That's pretty random. It was. Something with handlebars we yeah. needed. <laughs> well, I wanted to get, this is this is classic, so I wanted to get an ATV. I wanted to get a motorcycle. My dad said, I'll break your arm if you buy a motorcycle. I'm like, I love my dad, I respect him, so I live at his house, I get it. So then I went out, and I went, was going to buy one to Azusa Canyon with my buddy, and he had like three wheelers and a quad. Oh, it was ATCs. Yes. ATCs. <laughs> ATCs. ATCs. Yeah, yeah. And gnarly. I was like, oh, this is funny. I'm sliding sideways. I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> But my dad's like, nah. Then my other buddy took me jet skiing at Lake Elsinore. And I was like on my knees in this 440, and I thought that was the greatest thing ever. So I convinced my dad to let me buy a jet ski. And I bought like a 440. And I remember that's kind of like what I was doing. So then my other buddy's like, we were riding down at Marine Stadium, and we're riding after the Seal Beach Warm Water Jetty. And I'm riding this jet ski, and like this guy's like, dude, we should go, you should go race. There's a race this weekend, whatever. So... I start racing jet skis, but to race jet skis, you got to be fit because it's, you know, it's physically demanding. It's really demanding like Supercross. It's, oh, yeah. it's choppy water. I mean, it, like yeah. Victor Sheldon, that guy's super fit because of that. So I start racing jet skis and I need to get my fitness. So my buddy has, comes by my house on this Diamondback mountain bike, a Diamondback Ascend, and he's like pretty fit and he was swimming and he's like, hey, you want to go, want to go like ride mountain bikes? Well, about six months before that, I had bought a mountain bike, a GT, bought it from my buddy at work the right way, back in the day, Dennis Kishiyama. I bought this mountain bike from him, because I wanted a mountain bike, because my best friend Paul Dalton took a mountain bike, and we rode, we rode freaking Aliso. Is it Aliso? Wait, wait. No, Whiting Ranch, before it was Whiting Ranch. Like, there was no houses up there. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, I'm an ex-BMX racer. I can, this is going to be easy. Dude, I threw up. I got so freaking dropped. <laughs> I'm like, F this. I never rode that bike again. So my buddy Teddy came by. And we ended up putting, he, his mountain bike had like slick tires and like these ons and bar ends. And like, I'm like, oh, that's cool. So I converted my mountain bike to a road bike. And we started riding Santiago, the loop. So I was able to build some fitness. Then another buddy of mine's like, let's go mountain biking. So I switched everything back over because I was doing the mountain biking to get in shape for jet, ski, jet skiing. And then I got semi-fit and I was to help him with my jet ski. So I was kind of doing cycling, but I really like mountain biking. So one day... I was driving home from work, and I saw Toby Henderson, and he was doing the Fullerton Loop, which I ride every day almost now. Ironically, I pull over, and I'm, like, talking to Toby, and he's like, dude, there's a race this week, and you should go race. And he was riding for Factory Iron Horse. You know, he's not even in business anymore. Yeah. I like this, like, three-inch bike with a downhill bike, you know, like, air shock. <laughs> he had one of those derailleur things with the spring on the back to keep the derailleur taut. Yeah. So I had this GT bike, and I go out to Fontucky and race at Fontucky. I had my, didn't know my butt from my elbow. I decided for a mountain bike race on a hardtail and race downhill. 
like first race ever. And they get like third place in beginner on a hardtail. So I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is it, man. So then I go out and I buy like a GT RTS. Remember that bike? Mm-mm. Blue. Yeah, you weren't even born yet, bro. No. It. Yeah, it was a blue. It was blue and gold. Like Google a picture of a GT RTS. Like it's just a class. I can't leave a brakes. Like an 80 millimeter, like Rock Shock Mag 21 or something. And I just kind of got into it. But I was doing downhill. And then my other buddy started doing cross country. And at Fontana, when Donnie was running it back then, Southridge, you did everything the same day. So we'd race cross country in the morning and then downhill at night. It was it was cool, you know. I mean, so I've been going to Fontucky racing since like day one. That's what twenty five years. I'd love to see. Yeah, that. yeah. I think this year's the twenty sixth annual. Actually, yeah. I, I actually race for Donnie now. But yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, I, I no, would have loved to have seen what. It was yeah, like and we used to race in that backside where the cross country course was. Yeah. So then, then I built like Toby kind of gave me like this co factory sponsorship. So I was on Team Iron Horse. And I rode an Iron Horse, like, actually they were foes, like about a foes weasel, and we converted, it had like Iron Horse stickers on it, the T-H-E-1 or something. And I had that bike, and then I had like this other cross-country bike, and just kind of started doing that. And then that was kind of when downhilling was, you know, we were still doing cantilevers. There wasn't really a triple clamp fork yet. And the courses were like fire rows. And then downhill kind of started like evolving, like disc brakes, big shocks. And uh, I remember race, I was racing at Fontana. I moved up. I think I got, like, I went right through beginner the first year, no problem. The next year, the big series was Fontucky and the Big Bear Cup. I got second in Big Bear the first year in sport or whatever it was. And I got second overall in cross country at Fontana and second in his downhill series. So then I went to expert the following year. And that's when I started getting, like, you know, pretty gnarly. And I remember racing Fontucky, and I was racing with David Langer. And I took a header, like one of the sections, and you still kind of race it out there. And one of the bars, and I remember landing on the back of my head, and every bone on my back went, Grrr! scared the bejesus out of me. Oh, yeah. Kind of got up. My buddy's like, you okay, you okay? I'm like, yeah, I think so. Got back up. And that really, like, kind of like, all right, you know, maybe I better kind of, I'm in my 20s now, maybe I should kind of, like, back out of this mountain bike downhill thing and just kind of stick to cross country and have fun, you know? Mm-hmm. That was like kind of like the turning point because downhill that's when it Sean Palmer then Lopes and Carter and Coley yeah. and you know Earthquake Sean. Jake Watson and all those guys that's when the sport just blew up you know yeah. where you would race go to Big Bear for like a Norba National they had qualifying for the pro class like 190 guys to 120 that's how many pros there used to be oh, it was crazy so that was yeah like you said earlier you know Jeep was involved and big big sponsor you know yeah. I'm looking at that GT it's a funky suspension design yeah Exactly. It's got like the bot, like the linkage from the bottom. Oh yeah, that thing was. That's it right there. Mine was, yeah, mine was blue and gold. That's interesting. Yeah, I've never was, seen that frame. Yeah, you weren't even born, dude. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> you, were, you were still running like a tricycle with the training wheels, like ah. So secretly, you kind of uh, invented mountain mountain biking back no. when you were six years old on the Stingray and the dirt trails. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you had the right idea. At Your first. inspiration. No, that's uh, that's pretty cool. I, I, I mean, this is all news to me. I, I, I almost feel. I mean, I got in in 2008, so I'm, I'm a late bloomer. Yeah, obviously. no, it's, so I, you I mean, know. it's cool to hear all the history as far as That's BMX. And, and you're seeing the progression of mountain bikes. I mean, you're looking at your bike now, and it's just... And what, do you, what do you think when you see this bike compared to the bikes that you, you first started riding? Well, okay, so obviously, and that's, I get the, you know, like... years, there's spaceships in the comparison. So, you know, I own a bike shop, and I'm, I'm still, like, excited about bikes. So every time I see a bike or a new bike comes out, like, I'm all over it, and I'm a techno guy. I love the tech, like, the technology of bikes. But, like... I look at this bike now, like, this thing's just bitching. 
in three years, we'll be looking at it go like, seriously, I used to race that bike? Yeah. I mean, go back 2008. That's not that long ago. Ten years. Yeah. Look at, I mean, the bike had bars that were like. I wouldn't ride that bike. Yeah. <laughs> tires this big, the forks. You couldn't even sit on You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they come into the shop all the time. Like, some guy brought this specialized Enduro, and he's like, oh, yeah, this thing. I'm like, that was the best bike back in 2014. And today, it's not worth 50 bucks. No. It's so crazy how everything evolves and how fast. Yeah. So we're looking at a uh, giant XTC. Yeah, so that's basically that's my race bike for over the hump, and I'll bike ride that tomorrow at Rwanda. So it's a giant XC Advanced SL, okay. twenty-seven point five medium size frame. Medium size frame. What's that weigh? Uh, with the RS one, it's right at about nineteen five with pedals. Nice. Eleven so, speed. You got uh, It's a one by eleven okay. SRAM with uh, race face uh, next SL crank. Purposely eleven speed, or are you just not into twelve speed? Um, no reason for twelve speed for where I ride, and yeah. I want the weight, you know. If I build another one next year, then I'll just do 12 because that's going to be the new standard and you got to go with it. Yeah. So, I've been noticing a lot of cross-country guys after for the, uh, the 11 speed. Yeah. One price, yeah. two, just weight-wise. I mean, the 12 speed around here. I mean, yeah. you're pushing 11 speed the year before, the 12 speed's not really. Exactly. And you don't need, the only advantage of the 12 speed is you get the big bailout gear. You know, you yeah, you big... can run like a 36 or a you know, yep. front, you know, bigger exactly. rim. But either way. Is that an oval yeah, ring? Yeah, yeah I run an oval ring on it, trying it out this year. Um, is that a 34 oval or 32? That's a 34. 34? Yeah. So technically a 34 is like a, what do they say? It's like a 36 and a 34? Kind of like a 35. 35. We'll in the yeah. middle. Yeah, so like a couple years ago before I ran oval for over the hump, and that's up, I ran the 36. Okay. So with this 34, it, it kind of gives you that same with a little bit more spin, I think. And I, I enjoy it. I think they're, they're good products. Which one is that now that you have? I think that is Black Spire. Okay. They have different clocking positions too? The, yeah, you, so you can oscillate it based yeah. upon how you put it on the spindle to get that different position like Rotar does. Were you, were you finicky with that at all or is it just kind of set and forget? Like you just kind of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It was on, it was good for me, you know. The weird thing on an oval, I don't know, is like when you first put it on, you don't really notice it. You just kind of like, all right, this is cool. When you take it off and go back to round, then you notice round more than you do oval, if that makes Weird. sense. Yeah. I would think the opposite. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. In a negative way, going back to round? It just feels different. And I have, I've done Rotar on my road bike, too, oval, where, yeah. like, I don't have it on my bike now because I just don't run those cranks, but yeah. I really liked it. Weird. I got to yeah. try it. I mean, it's, it's gaining popularity again. It is. You know? A lot of guys, and even on, like, that trail side stuff, like the Andy rides and that, those kids are all going to Oval. Yeah, Enduro is definitely, yeah, you see those, the bigger riders are using them. Yep. So, obviously, they got something going on. Absolutely. Yeah. So, even though you love mountain biking and all this other stuff, how did you transition to buying a bike shop? <sighs> wow. <laughs> so, the long and the short of that story, I mean, it's a great story, um, was... I was working for, Cor so, you know, life goes on, you get married, you know, I ha go to school, kind of, sort of, get a job. I worked, I worked in beverage, so I used to work for Coors. Okay. And when we worked for, we were a distributor, so we had, you know, like, a, like we owned distribution rights for a city or multiple cities, and we had trucks. So I was a route salesman, so I'd call on, like, Albertsons and 7-Eleven and do orders, and then the orders would get submitted in, they'd go on a truck, get delivered. So I got promoted to, like, a regional manager, so I'm managing a team of people, you know, yeah. just what we do. Yep. And then our company got involved with what we call NA products back when Snapple got launched. So I became the Snapple brand manager, and I was running a whole new division of our company that was selling non-alcoholic products. We had like Snapple and Crystal Geyser Water and Hubba Bubba Soda and all this stuff, Yoo-Hoo. And so then we started, you know, selling more items, and Snapple obviously blew up. So then at that time, I was really enjoying what I was doing. 
but I wanted more. You know, I want to be like on this life fast track, and I want to move up the corporate ladder. So our distributor went through some changes, and I started looking for work elsewise. I interviewed with Snapple because that was like my pad. Love Snapple, love because I wasn't. I didn't really drink beer, which wasn't me, but I still sold it and I understood distribution because I came from my father owning grocery stores. So I understood retail. I understood that my dad had sold out the store. That's why I never took over when I was mm. kind of doing the BMX mm-hmm. jet ski thing. Okay. That's where that kind of fell out. Was he was just getting old and it was time to sell. And I was too young. I was like sixteen. Yeah. So anyway, no big deal. So moving forward, I'm working for Coors. I'm working for Snapple, and I want more. So I interview with this, this the Snapple company to become a regional manager for Snapple. So we're going to make the product at Snapple, and they need people to call in their distributors. That's what I wanted to do. But Snapple had a policy. That was when they were owned by the two guys that founded them. They would never take a guy from one of their distributors. Mm. So I kind of got like, not, not screwed, but it just didn't work out. So I also interviewed with Arizona Ice Tea. Well, they offered me a position, but I wasn't. I really wanted the Snapple, and I was like, I'm not sure. Let me kind of wait. Well, ironically, about two weeks later, the company I worked for, I got fired. Me and the GM didn't get along. He, I mean, I'm not afraid to admit it. You know, he, he fired my butt, you know, which it was kind of like, and I was, remember, I wasn't engaged to Jody at the time. We were, you know, we were together, going to get engaged. That was kind of my plan. So I come home one day, and she cruises by, and she's like, gosh, you're happy? I'm like, I just got fired. She's like, you're so happy? I'm like, I'm stoked. I got a seventh package. I got time off. And I'm going to take the job at Arizona Iced Tea because I had an interview with Arizona. <laughs> they had offered me a deal, but I was kind of, you know, just so it all worked out. God had a plan. So I took two weeks off, rode my GT, Zascar, love and life. You know, it was chill. Went to work for Arizona and kind of, you know, was a regional manager. Then I got promoted and, and went through the ranking. I used to go to New York once a month. Um, mm-hmm. I was considered a regional vice president. I, ran, man, ran, I managed the entire Southwest Division. I had, like... 20 people working for me, had a great relationship with Mr. Voltage, the owner of the company, etc. I land, fast forward, I'm going to New York once a month for manager meetings. All the DMs would come in, blah, 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 big hoopla. Dude, I'm on a plane, 9-11, landing as planes are smashing the World Trade Center. Wow. I'm like, this is no lie. Like, we were one of the last planes to land. The airport's like Panamonia. I'm like, what's going on? Like, you see the CNN monitors, or like, you know, plane crashes in the World Trade Center, and this and that. So I get in the taxi. Taxi's taking me over to Lake Success. As we're going over this one bridge, you can see the World Trade Center engulf. Like, this is no joke. I go down over a couple other bridges. The other plane just crashes in. Like, I'm witnessing this. Like, I got two little kids at home. I'm a married man. The world's coming to a freaking end. It's over. Dude, like you have no idea. I remember that watching it on TV. Yeah, yeah I was there. Chills just thinking about yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, this is yeah, I get it like radical. So I was totally shocked when that happened. Long story short, I'm freaking out. I want to get home to my family, and like all the planes are stopped. Everything's crazy. There's a huge shutdown. Yeah. So I'm in New York, and God bless Mr. Voltaggio, but he calls a four o'clock meeting. So I used to fly the red eye because I'm such a far distance, and like mm-hmm. other people came from Florida and Texas, they get there on the same day. Yeah. So. I'm like, okay, so we go to Don's house, and Don is a billionaire. His house is incredible. We're sitting out. We can see the World Trade Centers in the far distance in Lake Success. I'm like, we're having a meeting, and I'm getting my head handed to me because I'm down in Arizona iced tea sales for the month. I'm like, bro, the world's going to come to a freaking end, and I'm getting head handed to me because I didn't sell like 900,000 cases of Arizona iced tea. I'm like, what is this? What, where's the value in life, you know? Dom was very passionate about his company, very passionate about his tea. I get it, but I'm like, man, this isn't just what I live for, you know? This it's, is not me. It's not the day. It's not human. It's not the day to right, do it. Right, right. You, know? you know, so anyway, 
That's so now I'm trying to figure out how to get home, crazy. and it's just, it's a mess. So <laughs> I'll never forget this. Finally, I get to the airport to go home two days later. My wife's freaking out. I'm still like, I don't sleep. I'm white knuckled. The airport's all shut down. I get on this plane. We sit on this runway for three hours, and I'm just like this. You know, I'm like, this is, this is crazy. Yeah. So they shut us down. We don't fly. They're like, make an announcement. Who knows? Fast forward the next day. I go back to get another plane. Now the airport is just packed. Like, it's jam-packed with people. Everybody's freaking out. Nobody knows anything. They make this announcement in LaGuardia Airport, which is the second biggest airport in New York. There's JFK and LaGuardia. At this point, we don't know when we're going to announce flights or let anybody leave. We're on lockdown for like three more days. We don't know, but we're going to make an announcement at 2 o'clock. Meanwhile, everybody's freaking out. People want to go home. So, like, there's a guy in front of me, and he's like, what's one of the guy next to him? And they're like, hey, we're thinking about renting a van and heading back. Heading back. I'm like, where are you guys going? Like, California? My car's at Long Beach Airport. I'm like, I'm in. Let's go. I meet four strangers in an airport that I don't know my butt from my elbow, and we rent a van. That sounds like a movie. You, I could, Lou, I mean, Danny, I can make a movie. Yes, this is crazy. <laughs> so we go up, because now people are buying cars to get home. People are rent like the rental cars are out of cars. We get a van. I said, look, I'll buy the rental van. You guys pay the gas. I don't care. Let's go. So I'm like, get home. So we get in the van. I don't know if these guys are going to rape me. I don't know what, anything. You know what I mean? So we all get to know each other. It's kind of like, I mean, this is no lie. We're driving, and one guy's like, he, he has a website, use Santa, use Santa Claus suits for sale. He sells Santa Claus suits. An other guy was like an aviation, and the other guy was like, I, like a chimney sweep dude. It was a crazy thing. Random. This is no joke. So we're driving home. I get a phone call. From the CFO, and he won't ever hear this, so his name, we used to call him Rick Fatass Rick Fatass Adelanto. <laughs> Big old freaking, just typical CEO of a company, or CFO. Forget about it. Exactly. He calls me on my cell phone, and I'm like, hey, what's up, Rick? And Rick was always good to me. He's like, I just want to know if I dock your pay for vacation for your commute home. I'm like, are you freaking for real? I'm driving home from freaking the biggest disaster the U.S. has ever seen, and you're going to ask me? I'm like... Yeah, what about when I'm driving 24 hours? I'm like, yeah, whatever, dude. I hung up on him. Like, so anyway, when I got home, it's great to see my family. Life went on. I was miserable. I hated my job. I hated my company because of what they did. My boss at the time, and not to too much detail, told me like, like the following month, like you have to go back to New York. I'm like, no way. I'm not going back to New York. You guys are crazy, man. People are telling you to fly. It was just, anyway. So at that point, I'm like, I'm over this. I'm done. Like, I lost my passion. My boss at the time, his name was Bob McLeod. Greatest guy I ever love him. Very, like, father figure because I lost my father at an early age. Um, I'm talking to him, and he's like, dude, you got to get out, Mike. This is not for you. I know you're not loving Arizona anymore. Like, I was riding my bike all the time. I, was, I wasn't working. I just having fun because I was, you know, work from home. So I wasn't happy because that's not who I was. So basically what I did was I started looking for other work. I ended up taking a job at another company down here in Irvine called GK Skaggs, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, it was just a different job. It was an office job. Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, boring. I hated it. I was absolutely miserable. I almost considered going back to Arizona, iced tea, but I didn't. So I go to lunch with one of my friends, and he's like, Robert Perez, good guy. And I was just, I went out of this. And he's like, bro, he was like a super, like, he was the guy that invented Coors Light and Downey. I'll never forget, that was his, like, that's what he said. All this cool, good-looking guys from Downey drink Coors Light, you know. He had a lot of energy. So we're eating lunch, and he's like, dude, 
you gotta start a bike shop because I was still riding and racing mountain bikes, and that's my still my passion. I'm like, it's it's not that easy, bro. You don't you don't get it. You know, I got a mortgage, I got family, I got kids, so that like stuck in my mind. I just started kind of praying about it and thinking about it and asking Bob for some advice. And he's like, Mike, you're in your 30s. If you have the opportunity, you need to do it now, no matter what happens. So. I used to hang out at Two Wheels, One Planet, which is now Fullerton Bikes, or was Fullerton Bikes, Two Wheels, One Planet, then it's Fullerton Bikes again. And, like, I knew the owner, and I knew the manager. Well, the owner's was Bud Campbell, and his, his nephew was Craig Campbell, was running the store. They had a falling out. Like, he got super family, you know. So, I was talking to Bud one day, and I'm like, and Bud's now my landlord. Bud would be, like, in his 50s, I guess, at that time. I'm like, what are you going to do, Bud? You know, are you ever going to consider selling the shop? Like, I'm just, like, making stuff up at random, like... I could do this. Don't know anything, you know, but I'm like, you ever want to sell the shop? And he's like, I don't know. But he was frustrated. So I was still working for the GK Skaggs, kind of bouncing some stuff off him. So I remember I'm traveling and I had, you know, a national manager for this company and I'm calling these key accounts, Kroger and all this all across the country. And I'm miserable. I hated it. Um, so like I get this phone, Joe Bud calls my wife and I call Jody. I'm like, hey man, I'm in like, Dallas, I'll be home in like eight hours. It's, you know, overlay, blah, blah, blah. So my wife's like, I'm like, anybody call? Because I've been you know, like cell phone and answering machine. You wait till yeah. me. Get, like, who called an answering machine? Did you have a beeper back in the day or what? I had a pager, bro. <laughs> but I only, got, I only got like call the office. It wasn't like, I wasn't that privileged. So I get this phone call and Jody's like, oh yeah, some guy named Bud called. I'm like, what? Bud called? So I got like run to the pay phone. You know, I think I had a cell phone. I don't remember. I think I'm sure I did. But anyway, I call Bud and I'm like, hey, what's up, Bud? He's like, hey, can we meet for lunch? You know, I'd like to talk to you about buying the shop. I'm like, <laughs> sure, you know, like, oh, yeah, no problem. I got a plan. Let's meet. So we just meet very casual in Fullerton. And when we met, you know, he was like, so what's your plan? How are you going to do it? Well, you know, you got money? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just low. Anyway, so I just kind of, I don't want to say I BS it through, but I'm like, you know, I can figure out a way to make it work. My wife knew nothing about this. My dad was gone. My mom was still alive. Um you know, it was kind of going fast. So then I come home and I talk to my wife. She's like, well, what's up with Bud? I'm like, well, you know, he kind of wants to, like, maybe some of this Bud. She's like, are you crazy? Blah, blah. I mean, you know. Anyway. <laughs> fast forward. I meet with Bud a couple more times. And next thing you know, like, we have solidified a deal to buy the bike, Fullerton bikes at the time. Um, whoa. Sorry. Hold on, guys. Anyway. Technical difficulties. Yeah. <laughs> it's a shop. They're looking to, you know. Anyway. So, long story short was we made a deal work. My wife supported me. Bob McLeod was very instrumental in, you know, this thing going down. Um, he gave me some good advice and said, you know, you're better to do it now when you're young than look back and have regrets later. If you fail, which you won't, well, you know, which you won't, he told me, he goes, you'll still be young enough to recover. But it, go with your passion. It's what you love. You love people. You love bikes. And you love the the numbers aspect and the, and the sales aspect of, of running a shop. So I was like, all right. So we signed papers on January 3rd, 2003, and I took ownership over on March 1st, 2003. And, you know, Fullerton Bikes was a very family-oriented bike shop, and I'll never forget, we're taking inventory, and I'm counting these stupid metal baskets. Like, these are gone. We just need XTR, bro. You know, like, <laughs> who's going to buy a beach cruiser basket? <laughs> you know? You'll be surprised. Exactly. But So it was a, you know, a, a great transformation of that whole thing. So I gave notice at the time and, you know, I mean, dove into owning a bike shop. And Bud basically gave me the keys and said, here you go, son. Have fun. Like, here we are. That's crazy. Dude, it's a, it's a crazy story. 
Wow, I mean, that was a lot of information, man. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I oh, you know, just, 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 let, let me digest this for a minute here. Just from the the nine eleven aspect, I mean, I, I, I don't remember much. I was eight years old. I mean, that, that shows my age. But I mean, it's just the the real the realism of it all. I mean, I, I again, I don't know much. You look back at it, it's just seeing it in person like that. It's got to be crazy, man. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't affect anybody. Like Unless it you were there, people that are, that are there, you know? and if you know, and you made that joke about you're like forget about it, you know, like the New Yorkers were strong. And I literally, in 9-11, being there three days, like, what, like the face on the New Yorkers, these arrogant, pompous people that have so much belief in themselves and their country or their state and their community were just demoralized. You saw it in their faces. Like, it was nothing. It, it's just the people in the airport, you could, like, there was a dude next to me at one point in this airport. Like, he told me he walked 80 blocks to get out of there. Wow. He was filthy. Just didn't know what to do. I'm sure you're just in a daze. You're just yeah, trying, you're trying yeah. to get away. And then, you know, everybody knew somebody that they lost a life in 9-11. Everybody, you know, it was just, anyway, it was, yeah, that was, that was a major turning point in my life, you know, major. I mean, I, I, I they always say there's always, got always a plan and like 9-11's made me a better person. It made me do, get to what Fullerton Bikes is and then it's made me create and build incredible relationships and friendships with so many great people. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a story that I have to say, like, what good could come from 9-11? Well, to me, that was, it changed who I, I mean, it's, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for 9-11. And then the friendships that I've made through guys like yourself, Lou, and, you know, over-the-hump friends, and non-dot friends, and just fight cycling friends, it all stemmed. I mean, that's like the turning point, like, that's what turned my life around, you know? The way it brought everyone together at that time, too, is like, it was the most... Mm-hmm. It was, you know, National Day of we've Prayer. Ever been, yeah, you know? yeah. And obviously we don't, that's not how we want our country to, you know. No, no, <laughs> but, definitely not. But there I mean, was, you know, a lot, a lot of, a, more bad than good ever happened, you know, but it affected me and, and it, it, it made me a better person in the story, you know. So how did you acquire uh, Winterford Lakes? Um, so basically, you know, Bud was kind of approaching the end of his career. And when I initially had talked to Bud and presented, like, why I want to buy Fullerton, I said, you know, I foresee myself turning Fullerton around, making it a, taking his foundation and making it better. And then when the time's right, I, hopefully I can prove to you that I'm an, an eligible owner and I have the capabilities to run two stores and I'd like to offer to buy Blaine Park from you. His plan wasn't to sell it for five years, but Susie, his wife, was kind of done because she had kids and there were kids, had kids, she was a grandma and she was loving it. And she was kind of overpaying the bills and doing it. So she kind of said like, if you want to start paying the bills, bud, you can. But I think it's time to get rid of Buena Park. So there was a couple other shops at the time that were interested in Buena Park, and we all kind of had to present to Bud, like, why we should take what, you know, and I made a presentation to Bud, as I did to buy Fullerton, and kind of put it all together, and, you know, by the grace of God, he chose me to, you know, run his store. When did you, when did you purchase that shop? October 2005. So I had a Fullerton about a year and a half. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a quick... Yeah. That's a quick... So, uh, so yeah. I'm to get two shops. Yeah. And it's, you know, I mean... Lou, I know you're tight with the path and a lot of different shop owners. I mean, it's, it's, I have a lot of respect for guys that own bike shops. It's not easy. It's no. not easy. No. So you're saying Two Wheels, uh, One Planet. What, what was the story about that? I haven't heard anything about that. So back in the day, uh, Jerry Marooney, who kind of did what Bud Campbell did to me, created Two Wheels, One Planet. And that was kind of like they were actually going to franchise that name and create all these shops and create a franchise and they kind of worked together. And for me, when I took over Fullerton, I went right after BMX because that's what I knew. That's what I did. And then I had children and I wanted to kind of start with the BMX because I was kind of, you know, I was back in the Lance Armstrong day and just that was where I was kind of going. So 
I became a part of Two Wheels, One Planet. But I couldn't label. I At the time, that shop didn't even have a website. So I created a website, but the website couldn't be called Two Wheels, One Planet because Michael Maroney, who owned Two Wheels, One Planet Costa Mesa, that was his domain. So I created a website called Fullerton Bicycles slash Two Wheels, One Planet. So then I created like a little BMX team. We were racing. And then like some guy comes up to me that I knew and he's like, hey, man, I went to your shop in Costa Mesa and they don't even have any BMX stuff. And I'm like, so I'm kind of like marketing BMX. And like, so I'm like, you know what? I got to break, the, you know, I gotta, it's not going to work being two wheels, one planet. Mm-hmm. So at that time, I told Michael Maroney, who the owner, I'm like, you know, I'd like to just brand my shop myself. And we didn't even do the same brands. He did track. I didn't do track. I did giant. He did, I don't know. It doesn't matter. So anyway, so I, I just created one back to the basics, Fullerton Bikes. And within that year, I slowly phased off. It used to be Fullerton Bikes, two wheels, one planet. I just dropped the two wheels, one planet. And then it was Buena Park, Two Wheels on Planet. I just dropped that off and just kept it FB and BP. So that's where that was. And Michael's a great guy. And actually, Michael just sold Two Wheels on Planet Costa Mesa to Will, another great guy. So he owns that shop. So that guy is actually completely done with the bike industry. And he's done incredible his whole life. So I was going to say, I've seen Two Wheels on Planet recently. Mm, they're, yes. still, they're still around. Right? So there's one store. And Will kept the name Costa Mesa off 17th Street. That's okay. still the okay. shop. So plug to Will. He's my boy. Nice. Cool, cool. His business good? <laughs> You're funny. Uh, yes and no. Okay. I mean, you know, and I'll use my good friend Tony. We have a lot of good conversations about the bike industry, and you know, bicycle retail is changing. And you know, there's not too many bike shops that could sit there and look you straight in the face and say their business is booming and growing. Mm-hmm. It's not. You know, the internet's taking a hit. That's what it is, uh, right? Internet. Well, I think you and I had that conversation when we talked uh, last time I saw you about this yeah. podcast. The internet's. Uh, it's taken its hit, of course, but the biggest thing is it's lack of newcomers into the community. It's the lack of that BMX from in the 80s. Interesting. Okay. So the biggest thing that, you know, I think is I'm, the, I'm in that age where I grew up, you know, you guys weren't even born then. So I grew up when BMX was huge and bikes were huge and the kids rode bikes to school. You know, you, yeah. when yeah. I went to school, if you didn't get to that bike gate by like 802, your bike couldn't even fit in there to get locked in. I challenge anybody to go to a school today and let me know how that happens. It doesn't. So what's happened to me in the bike industry, one of the things that I think has happened is guys in my age, when I was like, when BMX was big too, like in the 90s, in the 2000s, when you know I was racing with my kids, is I was a biker. So when I had kids, what do I want my kids to do? They're going to ride bikes. This guy here, his kids, you know, he was a football player. So he pushes his kids to football. So a lot of us, we were in our 30s, had children, started families. We pushed like into our kids. Okay, so there was a boom for, for, for kids cycling. Like, we used to kill it with fit. We were the biggest fit dealer, brick and mortar in the United States. We used to sell over 300 bikes at Christmas time. Wow. This is in, like, 2005 through 2008. But anyway, wow. so, so that, those, you know, those kids, you know, a lot of them stayed with bikes. You probably started young. Danny, Brent started young, Jake Marr. You know, we all started with BMX. My son, Turner, all these kids that are still riding. But then there's a lot of kids that didn't stick with it. Okay, so... This Christmas, I sold 30 juvenile bikes, 300 to 30. So that's happening right now. So the kids, there is a high school movement. That's good. But like the younger movement of kids riding bikes is not happening. You general, know? general population. Correct. Juvenile bikes and even whatever Walmart sells, it's just different. The second thing is guys in my age that haven't taken care of themselves, you know, they're getting older. They've got bad backs and bad knees. You know, they're not riding bikes. Our generation from if you're – probably 45 to 60 like we that 15 year gap we experience bikes it's all we know because it was either bikes or skateboards or soccer or surf and that was it there was no cell phone computers 
So guys my age, you know, and older are dropping off. You know, I had a guy who was 52 years old. I got a phone call. Guy you went to high school with, he died. You know, wow. so we're losing people. You know, and then I look at myself. You know, riding a bike is not easy. You know, you go out and you guys went out and did hill repeats. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's a lot of work. A lot of guys can't do that. You know, yeah. so we're losing people our age. You know, it's it hurts to ride bikes. Are they fall? Like I have another customer. He used to come in all the time. Greatest guy ever. You know, nice bikes, 29ers. He's always buying the latest and greatest, you know, RS1, whatever. He didn't care. I didn't see him for like six or eight months. He shows up at the, I see him at like that Starbucks. I'm like, dude, where you been? Dude, I took a fall, broke my collarbone, broke my back. I just, I just can't ride a bike anymore, you know? So we're, because he's old, you know? He's in his 50s, I'm gonna call it old. But yeah. so we're losing that customer. We're losing that person. So it's not only a combination of, you know, the bike shops losing to the internet, we're also losing people. The younger generation, bikes aren't cool. You know, he brings his bike to high school. They're probably like, what are you doing, man? They laugh at him. Like, you ride bikes? That's not cool. You should be riding skateboards or smoking weed or doing the bong. It's, it's just so sad to see all this happen and change, you know. But that's a big problem. So I look at cycling like, okay, so if we're not getting kids cultivated on bikes today, when those kids have kids, I mean, where's it going to go, you know? What can, be, what can be done? What can be changed? And Lou, that is an incredible question, you know? I mean, I just think the cities, the infrastructures, there needs to be more exposure to bikes. There needs to be pump tracks. There needs to be, you know, just places for kids to go ride bikes with their parents. I mean, I had a conversation with a customer the other day. He came in, and he's a cool dude, and I'm like, you know, his kid was there. I'm like, Junior, why don't you have a bike? He's like, oh, it's not safe. And this kid's like 8 years old, 10 years old. Maybe it was 10, 10, maybe I think it was 11 years old. And I'm like, so I go, mind I ask, sir, why isn't riding a bike safe? Oh, you know, I, I don't know where he's going to be and blah, 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 and all this other. Like, he was making up excuses. And I go, so let me ask you a question. When you were a kid, did you ride a bike? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, so how did your mom get a hold of you at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? She yelled. <laughs> you know? She's like, Daniel, she, get home. <laughs> she did it. You know? She, like, I had to be home in the streetlights when I, I said, exactly. Yeah. He goes, you can have a cell phone? He's like, oh, yeah. You know, he's got an iPhone. All right, cool. I go, so right now I can turn that phone on and track your kid wherever he goes. Mm-hmm. There's apps. If that guy, you know what I mean? If the phone doesn't move, it's going to beep. So I go, you mean to tell me if your kid's on a bike and he rides to his friend's house with a cell phone, you could look at him on the cell phone and track him. Mm-hmm. We couldn't do that. When I was a kid, 8 o'clock, summer, get up. Mom, will be back about 4 o'clock. Okay, had a watch. Do we ride to, we'd ride from Fullerton to Huntington Beach to watch the girls with bikinis or whatever. It didn't matter. We'd go to like Curb National. We'd sprint down, we'd sprint down Beach Boulevard and knew all the good curbs were to jump because we'd get big air. So like, I would, my mom had no idea. I could get hit by a car and be dead for four hours. She wouldn't even know it. Like four o'clock, we hit Mike's on home. Where'd he go? Yeah. But these kids now, we have tracking devices. So like, that's a BS excuse. Yeah. But that's what people think. Yeah, there's more cars. There's more distractions. And I get all that. But it's like, I don't know. You just have to kind of like look at it and say like, Kind of like pour your head out of your butt, you know. This is you need. We need to do something. We need infrastructure. We need parks. We need communities. Mm-hmm. And the other thing we need, you know, and I don't know who's gonna listen to this podcast, but like Giant Trek and Specialized, these big bike companies need to make a push to go towards juvenile. Yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm a commercial truck driver, and uh, we do a lot of work in Irvine. Yeah. And you know, always in the morning, and I'm seeing more kids actually on bicycles. I mean, they're not. Praise Jesus. They're not like nice bikes, but Doesn't they're matter. bicycles. They're you know, right. they're, 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 they, they got, nice they got their helmet like in the back of their head, you know what I mean? Like, it's not on their <laughs> yeah, property. It's up here, doesn't you know fit. I mean? But yeah. there's a lot of kids in Irvine on bicycles. Yeah. I'm like, well, wh- why aren't the shops uh, doing clinics with schools, hey, you know, bike maintenance or whatever, and, and kind of get the kids, the, the younger kids engaged in, you know, bikes and get them stoked on bikes? I, I think Isn't the, that nice to them? 
no, 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 that's no. So no I'm talking school. about like like local bike shops going in there, hey, talking to the principal or whatever, the administration, hey, I want to do a uh, a clinic on bike maintenance for the kids that are riding bikes to school, like loot the chain, yeah. you know, this stuff like that. Well, remember bike rodeos? Who knows if you what? you might remember? So like when we were growing up, schools would do bike rodeos. <laughs> So, but a bike ride, and I know that you guys are going to laugh, but this Dan, is Dan good Lord stuff. Dan would like this. So, <laughs> that would be like, you know, like, the crossing guard would be there, and they'd bring a police officer in, they'd tell you all the rules, put how to ride a bike. So, I've had, like, a couple schools in Fullerton do bike rodeos. So, they'll call me up, like, hey, can you come? Like, absolutely, I need to be there. So, basically, what it is is, you know, they get, like, points or whatever, but the school presents this, and then they have, a, like, a Fullerton police officer's there, whatever city it's in, and, like, they... Tell them, like, if you ride a bike, you have to obey the rules, and they get, like, points towards stuff. So my job as the bike shop owner is my job is to make sure all the bikes are inspected and make mm-hmm. sure the bikes are good. So it's almost, like, comical when I go there because, first of all, every kid there, their bike is A, not every kid, but let's say 92%, 95%, the bikes are too small. Okay. Yeah, so, definitely. like, you know, Melissa's got this 16-inch Murray her dad bought from Walmart seven years ago the tires are flat the seat's too low the brakes don't work and it's basically got spider webs on it her helmet fits like you said Lou it's back here and like my job is to make the bike work so I gotta pump up the tires and like these kids get in these bikes and they look like monkeys screwing footballs it's crazy <laughs> and I'm like this is sad you know yeah. like so out of all these kids and I did this one I counted it there was 60 bikes showed up which was incredible out of 60 bikes seven bikes were current like the bike was the right size for the right kid and it was kind of like this kid actually might ride his bike once in a while the other bikes were basically bikes that don't fit the kids the bars were in the lap they had flat tires the brakes didn't work you know utter embarrassment and then no offense to these kids but watching them ride was almost like i could have made a great youtube video it was embarrassing, like, to see these 13-year-old kids in third and fourth grade or whatever grade they're in try to ride these bikes and go through the cones like, oh, boy. So I wanted to go back to the – I mean, obviously, you talked to Tony. But does he share the same philosophy with the bike industry? Is it, is it more on a local level than an international level? You know, Tony's super passionate about bikes, super passionate, super passionate about the industry, super passionate about kids on bikes, I and mean, I think we share a lot – all the bike shop owners that I know, we all share the same passion. That same kind of philosophy Absolutely. of kids. Absolutely. Kids being, kids being on bikes is more important. Right. Local, right. like kids right. being on bikes. And is I think more we, we just bikes. get sidetracked in our work and in our passion for what we truly love as adults is like enduro and, and the thousands of thousands of dollars right. that you right. put into a bike versus the base. But we forget how important the kid is. So yeah. if you guys follow me on Facebook, you see I post kids' photos and I try to just emphasize like rad a kid is on a bike you know mm-hmm. because him as a high school racer kid you know he needs kids to come up behind him to keep him going you know what yeah. i mean whether he races just the fact that you know kids on bikes is so important so important that's so interesting i i never heard that point of view before and obviously coming from you it's it's the most real out of all of it i mean all you see online is people talking about oh jensen's oh chain reaction it's ruining all the bike shops and obviously there's a chunk of it from that you know, but it. I mean, the bike shop can't go away. You know, no. the idea of the bike shop. I mean, it's. I mean, do the numbers. I used to sell three hundred bikes at Christmas time. Yeah, and that's not online sale bikes now. No, and there was online back then. Yeah, so, so that's, that, that tells you. Just right put there. The, though. This is 
not to get off subject, but this is a classic conversation comes in. Obviously, I know most of my customers. And so, is this your busy time of the year? Oh wait, wait. they'll be like, you know, talking. I'm like, they're like, oh no, Christmas time. You must just kill it. I'm like, well, yeah, we kill it all right, you know. I'm like, no. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, not like we used to. And as soon as you start talking to the person, like, you know, there's this thing called cell phone and cool skinny jeans and other stuff that kids want. <laughs> they're like, oh, like, like the light goes on, like, poof. And I'm like, well, yeah, you know. What and then, like, what's funny about Christmas and kids belling bikes, leave me alone, is I can remember, like, before the internet get, like, became, like, in, in like, 2005 to 2008, dads would walk in my shop or moms would. And they'd have a piece of paper printed out from like Dance Comp or whatever. And Junior wants an Odyssey T1000 wheel, and he wants a 9 tooth driver, and he wants the Fit Slam bar, and a yeah. demolition stem, and you know, yeah. blah, blah. You know, I mean, they'd walk in and be like, okay, we got this. This is here to go here. Don't have that, but we can order it. We'll get it for Christmas, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yeah, all right, cool. That doesn't happen anymore. Ba point, done, over. I mean, 300 bikes Christmas, kids' bikes. You know, yeah, they're 200 $300 bikes. That's a lot. I mean, that's that's crazy. The like, traffic that you could have had. The I mean, semi you know, would just... show up from S&M and unload six and seven pallets of bicycles. The Fit 18, I remember one year we sold 25 black Fit 18 bikes. I sold two last year. Those were astonishing numbers. Like, mm-hmm. I hate to say it against, mm-hmm. against the bike industry, but yeah, you nailed it. Who gives a crap about Jensen and all these online? We need to focus on that. The future of, I, of yeah. the sport. I, I'd be so curious, like, with with, uh, what's the remedy to that? I mean, obviously, local level pump tracks. I mean, I know they're trying to uh, work on mm-hmm. Craig Park. I mean, I don't know how far along that's. Yeah, you if you went to the meetings. I went to the meeting that that one oh, time. And it's, yeah, it's, what about the Great Park? They're trying to do something there, right? Yeah, they just had a big meeting there twice, you know. And I mean, is I'm, that is that them trying to work on bike usage, or is that that almost seemed like that was threatening bikes even being there altogether? Well, though. so what's happening is they just had a meeting. They're trying to build a BMX track and do some okay. stuff. So, once again, another problem is this is being presented by, like, guys like you and me are going there talking to city council. So, my thought is, and I'm going to say something bad, like, okay, so BMX is run by USA Cycling. So, why doesn't somebody from USA Cycling get their head out of the rear end and show up with some real statistics? Mm -hmm. Why doesn't somebody from some of the bike manufacturing companies or somebody from you know, somebody that's got, like, people for bikes or these massive bike organizations show up and say, okay, let me be, you know, let, let somebody else besides me and you and some dad that are passionate, let somebody with statistics start mm-hmm. speaking and getting involved, like USA Cycling. Like, some weight behind them. Yeah, they're a national national cycling organization. You know, mm-hmm. they have statistics. They hold BMX races. They are the sanctioning body of BMX. It's their job. It's their job. But yet, no different when the Orange Y went to waste, they showed up, like, at the last minute. I wasn't really involved, but like, anyway, we won't go on that subject. Yeah, yeah. but you, it's which it's, what's sad is that there's a lot of big um, manufacturers here in California yeah. that could be pushing it and, and right. you know right. making something you happen. You can't blame them all for that. I mean, they they have their own troubles because being the bike industry as a whole on a corporate level. I mean, obviously, but that's the problem though. I mean, you're you're losing you're losing customers because you're not really going after them now. But I like think you're dealing you're dealing with so many numbers as far as employees, where like a bike shop can focus on one thing. But like you look at corporate uh, companies, they're just focusing on sales. I would say get to the right bike shop that's selling the most. Maybe they're not thinking ground level, like like grassroots probably. They but, lost the vision. Is that what you're saying, or what? What's that? They lost the vision. 
I wouldn't say they lost anything, but it, it, I don't think they ever had this problem to begin with. I think it's a new problem, especially with technology. We talk about kids, they're not doing anything. They're not riding their bikes. I mean, it's not that like, oh, a, a new scooter came, everybody's riding scooters while, while it is popular. Something's happening where people, it's video games. I mean, that's probably the biggest thing, mm-hmm. but it's just kids not going out. Parents, arguably, are probably sheltering their kids too much, right. like you had that issue. Right. Way too you much. You know, it's... it's Another, there, there's so many factors. Another you know? problem that I've experienced, you know, and I've seen this. So we talk about the parent being concerned that Johnny's not safe. Okay. I, I mean, it's a good concern. It is. Because you love your kids to death. And you know, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I get that. So, but let's just say Johnny wants to ride a bike, which maybe he does. So now, if you're not safe, your kid's not safe, that means you as a parent are going to have to, you know, take your kid to the park and ride. You know, but the parent of the younger generation from my generation, nothing against them, but. You know, they're in a different state of technology as well. Yeah. You know, they're at home on the computer, Amazon, you know. So for the parent to take the kid to the park, that means they have to get involved. Yeah. So sometimes that, you know, I'm, I'm not to say the parents are lazy, but I've seen this like. It's a burden. Now we, yeah, we got to get four bikes now. Or we get, you know, get, ah, and a Saturday. Bike, and a bike rack on your car. Right, right or Saturday, I don't want to go to the park with my kid. We got oh. soccer, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, they do it for, but you know, it's it's another. The show starts at eight. I got to be back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, movie, you know. <laughs> hey, I got to gotta, gotta FaceTime with my buddy. Or, I mean. <laughs> We can go on forever, but there's a lot involved, and it's it's sad because I think the bike manufacturing companies, the big guys, you know, I get it because they don't see return on revenue in a business. You have to have return, yeah. But yet you have to have investment, you know. And I mean, a prime story was back when BMX was pretty big. There was a professional rider named Christophe Levesque who was from Europe, great guy. I heard that he was riding for Specialized, and Specialized was paying him coinage to race for him. Mike Sinyard, who is the founder of Specialized went to the ABA Grands in 1996 or whatever it was and said, this is the greatest thing ever. Look at all these kids. He was all excited. He told his people, we have got to dive into BMX and we're going to be committed and they're paying this guy 300 grand a year or whatever. Where are they today with BMX? What happened? I don't know. <laughs> he just collected a paycheck and took off? Well, he raced and then you know his time was over, but specialized, they were done. I mean, they just poof, pulled the plug. I mean, Giant, which I love, they, have, they used to have a factory BMX race team. They had some of the best in the world, three or four guys. Well, the cool thing about Giant is that they have a co-factory team, and your son's on it, right? Right. So they are developing junior athletes in the mountain bike world, mountain bike which world. is awesome. Which is great. Yeah. I mean, how many other big manufacturers have that, a co-factory team? I'm sure on local levels possibly, but yeah, not, not like it's a true co-factory. Yeah. But I mean, is Giant one of the very few that, that do that? I mean, specialized outsources through, uh, I think uh, it's called, uh, my goodness, the team, what is it, Whole Athlete. I mean, I think yeah, they're involved, but yeah, I think Giant's truly one of the only companies that says we have a co-factory team where they're running the branded kits. They're the main uh, factor of that team. Yes, yeah. they are. And they Versus, are, yeah. you know, like Brent got in trouble because he didn't have a certain part on his bike. Anyway, but that's... How's, how's he doing? Uh, <laughs> he's doing great. I'm very yeah. proud of him, you know, um, of his accomplishments. But it, it's tough, and Brent seems to have a bad luck streak going on. I think you had some bad luck getting hurt, and yeah. it's tough to race cross-country, especially today, you know. Um, but he's a talented kid. I believe in him. I put faith in him. He's got good people around him, and, and he can perform at the top. It's just mm-hmm. it's, it's up to him, you know. Matter of... Uh... Put it all together. Put it all together, and you know it's it's a lot of luck. You know, I mean, you got to have everything right. You got to be fit because those kids are fast and they're putting it in. You know, and there's there's you know there's reward for them because you know here we are crumbling on BMX, but yet you know I think BMX should kind of look at the mountain bike scene and take some notes out of it. Mm-hmm. Last year at Mammoth, 
the biggest classes were all the junior classes, correct? Yeah. I mean, you guys went and did enduro. You saw how big enduro was from 18 and under. It was out of control, right? Yeah, I mean, it's bigger than pro. Like, like 600, over 600 people were racing enduro. And the kids' class was over 100, correct? Yeah. Like 18 yeah, and was, under? There was a lot of kids out there. Bigger than the pro class. So, so there is that, but yet... And we're seeing that in mountain biking, like at Seattle, you're seeing the smaller classes start to develop, which I think is a good thing. But if we took junior cycling with mountain bikes, we got more beginner kids racing BMX bikes. You know, we kind of make bikes cool for these kids and have some more infrastructure in the cities and the schools get involved. And more, you know, it, it you could we could all benefit and see a growth. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think the uh, the community has to be involved, and so so does the manufacturers. You nailed it, Lou. You nailed yeah. it. Um, what's up with uh, Turner? Kids on fire. Right. Everything's going his way. Man, that's got to be awesome. Yeah, we're stoked for, for Turner. To, uh, Turner start off shop. start off a BMX racer. Yeah. Um, greatest great 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 family. Love his parents to death. Love Turner. He's a good kid. Um, he works hard. He's had some bad luck, but you know he's a heart of gold. And uh, to get invited to go uh, participate—that's a—that's a huge accomplishment, you know. And a lot of kids would give their left arm to do that. Yeah. So it's awesome because he's you know a SoCal kid. So and, and he's we humble. We all know him. And he's got good parents. Yeah, very most humble. importantly, very humble. Very humble. Good kid and good parents. No, it's, uh, I mean that's the contrary of what we're talking. And he about was too. a Fullerton rider, and he still is. <laughs> yeah, for sure. FB for life, bro. <laughs> so you're saying was he's he's with a well he went he's kind of doing his own thing you know he's got his own t- mix of sponsors yeah you know he still is a Fullerton rider he'll be Fullerton for life but you know yeah, he's on the yeah. giant giant helps him out um, he's kind of doing his like his own little thing and I think that's cool because he's putting it together yeah yeah but I mean it, it takes dedication um, you know and, and a passion to yeah to get to that level right absolutely I mean you know in high school Micah which you know Danny had mentioned here. That is awesome, and Matt Ganell is doing, I think, a respectful job. I look at that as BMX, and I look at it as mountain bike separately, and I think the two could learn a lot from each other. Um, I'm not going to get involved with that whole thing. But, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't blame you. But it's good. Everything is good, you know, but it's tough. You know, it's a tough sport. It's mm-hmm. the hours Brent puts in, the hours Turner put in, you know. It's gnarly. Yeah. I mean, they train like professional athletes, and they have to, unfortunately. That's how hard the sport is. Yeah, that's, that's, what, I was gonna, now. that's what I was going to say. On the contrary of kids not riding, there's also an elite. There's a crazy elite of, of, of these high school, these varsity riders that are basically pro riders. You know, the, the 16, 17-year-old kids that are on their way to pro very yeah. soon. You know, it's, So look it's at your times. Already. If you go and pull up Seattle results, and you look at the times of all the Cat 1 classes... And then look at the times of the junior boys, 17, 18. They are the fastest next to the pros. Yep. Like Brian Gordon, who we know is lightning fast. Victor Sheldon, lightning fast. Those guys last year at Sea Otter would have finished 10th and 12th. Wow. Like, those guys don't lose. You know what I mean? Victor Sheldon, national multi-champion. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. But that's, you know, but that's the sport. And then you take, so you take that level. And then you go, as you guys know, in the downhill enduro world, you know, we've got tremendous riders. You take this kid like Christopher Blevins. Like, he's on the next level. Like, he's a junior boy, just turned 19, getting third at Benelli mm-hmm. in, with world-class athletes. Oh, yeah. That's, like, not a, that's not an easy course. No. But third against, you know... It's not an easy competition. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he raced... It's not the course of Yeah, he raced that... The guy, he raced the guy that almost beat Nino Schroeder at Sea Otter... That guy wins and Blevin gets third. He's 19 years old. But guess what he was? XBMX racer. 
So that's something, too, that I think, like, the bike industry needs to kind of take advantage of is, like, showcasing these kids how they got there, you mm-hmm. know? Does anybody even know that Lance Armstrong was an ex-BMX racer? No. Mark Cavendish, ex-BMX yeah. racer? Yeah. I mean, George Hincapie, I think, did some BMX. Cadell Evans did mountain bike. I mean, there's a lot Brian of guys. Brian Lopes, Herrick Carter. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, Brian Lopes is one of the winningest. Oh, Tinker yeah. Juarez. Yeah. These guys all started. You know, like, I know all those, like, me and Cully are good friends, me and Lopes, and I had breakfast over at Lopes' house once, and I'm like, Brian, going back to when you were a 13-year-old kid riding your BMX bike at Parks, did you ever think you could become a successful man and earn a living riding a bicycle? I mean, Lopes... Yeah has a pretty swag house on Laguna Beach last time I checked. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, he drives nice cars. He's done well for himself. But that came from the bike. Yeah. So those, you know, those are, not that you want to bow, like, you know, like, this guy made lost money, right? But I don't think people are aware of that, you know? And the sport needs to give that back and let people know, like, there is hope. There is a future in cycling. And you can become famous and you can make a living and be married and ride a bike professionally and be an athlete, you know? And, and the companies need to pay them because they're risking their lives. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing with BMX today, too. Like, I think personally, like, when I was growing up racing BMX, Greg Hill, Stu Thompson, Perry Kramer, Turnall Henry, I can go on for hours, Scott Clark, Clint Miller, these all guys made money, had houses, and were married racing BMX bikes. When the Olympics became involved, it kind of took away a lot of this, like, funded from sponsorship, mm-hmm. because everyone's supposed to be an Olympic athlete and win the gold medal and make a million dollars, but that's only one person. Yeah. So I think that kind of hurt the sport as far as the professional ranks go. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I hear stories right. about what the professionals make today, and there's like maybe three or four guys in the United States that, like, actually make a little bit of money. If you're listening to this podcast, maybe I'm wrong. If you are, chime in, let us know. But not a lot of them do, you know, and they do it for the love of the bicycle. Yeah. So I think they need to be rewarded because they're risking their lives. Well, our, our rider, uh, little young gun, Blake Ray, you know, he started BMX as well. Yeah, but I rode with Blake. Great guy. Great family too, you know, yeah. and it takes support, and he's successful. Yeah. It takes the support of his parents. They sacrifice a lot for Blake, you know. Oh, but yeah. they're good people, and they love their kids, and, and we all do that, you know, and that's what it takes because it's a tough sport. It is a tough sport. Tough industry. <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> Bring it in, bro. High five. Wow. I'd love to see Mike Day be successful. BMX rider Mike Day. He got second in Sea Otter. Second in Sea Otter. He, yeah. he seems to do well locally. I want to see yeah. him do well. I'll talk about I think he's BMX. just, I mean, Mike's an incredible athlete, incredible bike handling skills on a BMX bike. Like, oh, like that. Silver in, uh, Silver Olympic. Olympic. But Mike was a great rider. Um, I just, you know, I think the, the, his age. And he's older, huh? and the and the risk, you know, he's got married yeah. twins. Do you think that dude wants to risk, you no. know? <laughs> and like you said, he kills it local where the tracks are, That's you know, true. World Cup. Yeah. I mean, you've seen World Cup; it's straight yeah. down in rock. Yeah. <laughs> like whoa, yeah. yeah. Let me see uh, elevator. Yeah, <laughs> I was looking at the course preview of the World Cup race this weekend. It's it's amazing what those guys can do, man. They're I mean, they're super athletes. It's a whole different league. I mean, you have it. You either have it or you don't, I think, to yeah. do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Do you think Over the Hump is uh, helping the sport out? Over the Hump's non-dot, um, quick and dirty. They're great for the communities and great for the sports. We need them. Yeah. Hands well, down. Mo- most of the shops are involved in all that kind of stuff, so which is great. Yeah. You know, you have to be involved, you know? Yeah. Because there's a lot of, you know, local teams, uh, shop-supported teams that are racing those series, so you got to be out there supporting your boys. I would argue that over the hump is probably, I wouldn't say a savior, but a huge aspect of what's keeping people on top of riding. You nailed it. You nailed it. And then non-dot being the following race, like once the kids, if they do grow up or if the parents who are just a guy in his 30s, 40s that just wanted to ride something easy, thinking like, oh, I ride 
Oaks all the time, mm-hmm. it's going to be a challenging race, let me work up to it. And then it's like, you have that option of going to the next, or even like the Whiting Time Trial. Mm-hmm. You have like a goal to go to the next right. race. And like, it, it's cool to have that kind of thing, you know? Racing, as much as people are always saying 26 is dead, but I have more fun on 26, racing and the, the idea of racing is what keeps the community going, it seems like. You have like a center, everybody can meet up. Right. And if you take over the hump or non-dot, you know, and I think you nailed it, like, you know, and you've been out there ever for, I wouldn't know, I mean, that's why I met you, right? You know, mm-hmm. but it creates, and this is like what I'm super passionate about, like, when the Orange Y closed down, I don't, all my Facebook stuff's usually family and friends, it's all positive. I kind of did the first time ever I wrote like a little story. So, I, all my closest friends are all from the bike, okay? Yeah. So, if you're 10, 12, you make friends, it's like, you know, like BMX is like this high school thing. So you create friendships and you create relationships. And then, you know, I remember like when I was out of high school, my best friend was a BMX guy and he lived in Huntington and whatever. But Over the Hump and Non-Dot and those guys, they're, they're creating those friendships. They're creating that like a third location. They're not, there was more than a bike race there because we don't have that. So when we go to Over the Hump, we automatically bond because mm-hmm. I know you love bikes. I know you, we already know we have that common. It's not like, hey, what's up? What do you do for a living? Well, I sold insurance. Oh, you're boring. You're almost, uh, not, str- you're almost not strangers. You yeah, know, you right, right. Bike, it's like, oh, it's so a nice bike. That's, that's it. what, yeah. you know, yeah, it's a race, and some guys go out there just to have fun. Some guys go out there to race and win and train. I get that, and that's all part of the fun of it. But the core takeaway from, you know, what we see out there is that we're creating friendships and we're creating relationships, and then that keeps the community going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, racing's awesome, but, like, tomorrow's Rwanda. And actually, I'm going to do it tomorrow because of high school is Sunday, not Saturday. So I'm super stoked. I'm more excited to go out and ride with just my friends and high five. And yeah, I'm going to lay it down and have fun and go fast. It doesn't matter, but not super fast. But it's just stoked to see that community. And like, I ride my road bike on Wednesdays with a bunch of old retired guys. Mm-hmm. And we do 60 miles and we cruise. But that is my favorite ride because when we're mm-hmm. done or we stop and get a bagel and coffee, we're just busting back, talking about life, like that fellowship, that bond we created. Yeah. So for the younger generation, you know, that's important, and, and they need that. Our human bodies, we need that. You know, we don't need to look on social media, oh, I got, like, my photo, cool. You know, we need to hang out and high-five and hug and get that emotion, that it's that sense of excitement when we talk, and the bike does that, you know, and that's another thing that's so crucial, you know. I know, like, him and Jake Maul, you guys did these road trips. I mean, how awesome are those road trips? They're awesome. It's honestly really we, we get to. we got one uh, next week. We're going up to Auburn. For so the first so so race. yeah. So back to you. I mean, those are experiences that he and you are going to cherish for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. There's photos. There's memories. Yeah. Not the saying if you didn't have the bike or you didn't have the racing aspect of it. Who cares if he wins or loses? But the things you see, the memories you create, mm-hmm. that is valuable. You'll remember that till you die. Yeah. You know. The bike did that, you know, the community, the family. And that's like, you know, like what I'm super passionate about. And it's like the bike is more than a bike. It's a great, great – it's one of the greatest things ever. It's freedom, you know. Yeah. And I can remember like – and I grew up with the bike. Like when I was like six years old, I got my first bicycle. I, I should have bought a picture. And I remember like I'd let – like when you were kids, you could walk from there to there and that was it. So I rode my bike like, all right, well, I can go farther because I'm on a bike, right? I go around the street. My mom was looking for me. She didn't find me. I'm like six years old. My dad came home. I got my ass whooped because I went past. <laughs> but, you know, it's freedom, you know? I mean, right. look what the bike created, you know? Yeah. And if you know the bike, let's look at the bike, just the bike, if you think about it, okay? So there was a guy like Brian Lopes, successful racer. That's his life, Okay. 
got Tour de France racers. I mean, these guys risked their lives. We lost a guy today who crashed in a big race, professional road cyclist, you know, you know, Godspeed. But it's sad, but these guys love the bike. They're professionals. They make money. That's what they do. Then you've got, you know, guys like us that are super passionate for the bike. We race for fun. We enjoy being around the bike. You got people that elect not to even own a car that are like full like, they ride their bikes everywhere. That's like their culture. It's community. I mean, it's so much more than just a piece of carbon fiber and one by 11 and a RockShox fork, you know? It's so much more. And that's, I guess, you know, in my closing or whatever, that's the part that people need to understand and what the bike brings and the fellowship and the community and the friendship, you know? It's just, it's huge. I'm so, such, such passion, dude. So I, I was, I mean, we're, we're coming up here. We got, what, four minutes till they close here. I mean, that was going to be, that kind of answered my last question. It was more of like, Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 you're fine. What, like, what was, like, I was going to say, what would be your takeaway? How would you like to close this? I mean, like, you can, you can talk about anything. Like, what would be the listener's takeaway of this? I mean, I'm a man of faith, so I give all the glory to God. Um, I'm thankful for where I'm at in my life. I'm thankful for what the bike's done to me and my family and my friends. Um, you know, yeah, it's a business and it's not easy and I make money and I pay my bills and I pay my family and I buy my clothes. You know, that bike means everything. My name, you know, means everything to me. Fullerton Bikes, that's my family. And, you know, I think people don't understand, like, I mean, yeah, it is a business, but I take so much pride and ownership in what I do and it means everything to me, you know. Um, I'm a blessed man. My family loves bikes. My son races. My daughter enjoys a bike ride. My wife rides the Fullerton Loop, and she's got a little friend that she rides with. I mean, that's, that's you know, the biggest takeaway is, you know, like I disclosed before, is it's everything, you know. It's, it's what I do. It's my friends. I do a bike and Bible study at Fullerton Bikes, you know. I'm not afraid to say that, you know. So we come together. We try to teach people about Jesus and how much he loves us and what it's all about. But we all have that bond about bikes, you know. So I just, I mean, I always tell myself. The day the UPS truck shows up and I'm not excited to see what's in that box I don't, is the day I'm like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> so, I mean, in closing, I mean, that's that's how I can close. Man, on that note, wow. that was an awesome podcast, man. Uh, I got a little emotional, dude. Too. Ah, stop it, man. <laughs> I'm serious, dude. Like, just thinking about the memories that, you know, me and, me, yeah. me and Danny have created, you know. Up and down, whatever, but still, you know, those are memories that were, right. you know, nobody and can take away. And that's your boy, right? Your, I mean, you guys are blood. Yeah. You know what I mean? So think about what that's going to mean in 15 years from now. You're going to get together for Christmas. Maybe he's not racing anymore. And you're going to talk about that trip you just made. Yep. You know, you're going to talk whether he went, but this, the experience, you know, and I see you're, you know, you guys are screwing around in the grocery store. You're having fun. <laughs> Is that what it's about, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's what it's yeah. about. It's about these guys. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome. You know, and then yeah, you give back. You give back. These other kids are ex- because of what you do. You know what I mean? So it's that's that's just it's legit, dude. Straight up. Well, I, I hope for a part two. To be honest, it was nice. I mean, oh. for me, I mean, me meeting you for the first time. Cool. It was nice meeting you, man. It's, just, well, it's pretty cool. I dig it. And I love bikes. Lose a solid friend. He's a good man to me. So you want to hit me up? I'm like. I'm in. Let's figure this out. You I, know? Can, I can listen to you for another hour. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. That's my story. There's nothing else to talk about. Uh, where, where, where are your shops located? So, you know, obviously Fullerton is in Fullerton on Commonwealth, off 91 Freeway, 424 East Commonwealth. And my second store is on Beach Boulevard, which is, gosh, that store's been there, dude, since 1947. Wow. I was thinking about that today. Um, that's off Beach and, like, Commonwealth. Okay. So, two stores, Monday two. Monday through Sunday? Every day, bro. We, we nail it, you know. Monday through, Monday through Sunday. 10 to 6, uh, 11 to 5 on Sundays. Sweet. Shout out to Fullerton Bikes and uh, Buena Park Bikes, man. man. I'm just blessed to have Mike here and to know him and be a friend. Thank you. It means a lot. Yeah. So it's all about the community. You guys are good people. Yeah.
Jordan, what can people uh, listen to this podcast? Uh, we're on SoundCloud. Um, obviously, if you're listening to it, it's probably, you're probably already on SoundCloud. But if you give us a follow, give us a like. Um, Facebook, it's NGFE Radio. On Instagram, NGFE underscore radio. And give us a hashtag at NGFE underscore radio if you have questions, pictures you want to show us. Um, other than that, shout out to uh, Sis Montaigne Brewery. Thank you, guys. Giving us another uh, another night here to yeah. Hey, Mike, you're in the top five, by the way. Yeah! <laughs> High five. Which top five, though? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah, Sis Montaigne. Pretty stoked we have those guys. But uh, another great episode, man. This is, this is cool. For sure. So, Big Lou out. Signing out. Yeah. Peace.